Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. For criminals and rogue governments, the COVID-19 virus is, sadly, just another opportunity to find new victims and new gaps in anti-financial crime oversight. ACAMS will create programming to try to address some of your concerns about best practices in these trying times. Go to hashtag online with ACAMS and to ACAMS.org to learn more. The podcast which you are about to hear was recorded in early February. It contains numerous insights into U.S. sanctions policy from Adam Zubin, who has served in government under three U.S. presidents, holding senior posts at the U.S. Treasury, including Financial Intelligence Undersecretary and Director of Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control. At Treasury, Zubin was responsible for a number of initiatives, including the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that resulted in the denuclearization of Iran. His work on the JCPOA takes on a new urgency as Iran is now hard hit by the COVID-19 virus and the world grapples with what the appropriate levels of sanctions should be during this crisis. Zubin is currently a faculty member at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and of counsel at Sullivan Cromwell LLP. It's a particular pleasure to chat with him. Here we go. The sanctions regime and what you tried to accomplish when you were at Treasury, how do you look back on that and think about it? It's an interesting role to play in government because my focus wasn't on terrorism in particular or WMD proliferation or human rights abuses or corruption. It was any and all. What we were expert in was a tool. When our government was focused on an adversary, whether it was another government or a non-state actor like a terror group, often they would turn to Treasury and say, what can you bring to the table to help advance our strategy? When we did our jobs well, we could help the U.S. government pursue a strategy more effectively, whether that was deterring bad conduct, trying to push a foreign government into a corner where they would need to take up diplomacy, as we did with Iran. It's good that, and healthy that there's a lot of focus these days, much more than when I started in government, on this tool because it is being heavily used. There's a lot of need for it. If you think about the range of threats we face in this somewhat chaotic world, what are the tools we have to confront those threats? Diplomacy has to be first and foremost what we turn to. We have our intelligence capabilities. And then there's the military. You don't want to get to the military. And if diplomacy isn't yielding the necessary results, you want to have something that is coercive without being military. And that's really where sanctions come in. And it's not just what people think of as sanctions. It's the broader economic toolkit to put pressure on states. Sanctions were a very effective tool with regard to ending apartheid in South Africa. Then there's also a place where we're seeing that sanctions don't work. Are they working in Venezuela? Sometimes, no matter how smartly designed they are, no matter how carefully they're pursued and how much diplomatic effort is invested, sanctions aren't going to work. Russia and Russian allied forces are still active in eastern Ukraine, despite really strong sanctions from the European Union, from the U.S., and from other countries. Some argue, well, were it not for a strong sanctions pushback, Putin would have gone further into Ukraine, maybe all the way to Kyiv. We have no way of knowing or testing that, so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like proving a negative. I'd be the first to acknowledge that the sanctions effort with respect to Russia and eastern Ukraine did not achieve its primary objective. There was a lot of good strategy that went into that and important diplomatic effort. But to say that sanctions sometimes fall short 
isn't an indictment of the tool. Diplomacy sometimes falls short. Military actions, of course, sometimes fall short. We have to be a little bit more savvy in how we assess a tool. Sanctions irritated the Russian government. Is there some good just in that? At their height, they had a very powerful impact far beyond irritation. We were seeing the Russian central bank reserves falling at a precipitous rate where the slope would have indicated they were 12 to 18 months to exhausting their reserves. And this is one of the 20th largest economies in the world at the time. It certainly had Putin's attention. It didn't change his conduct. And so you have to think, well, what are on both sides of the ledger? What was he accomplishing in eastern Ukraine, whether domestically in terms of shoring up political support, whether in terms of sending a message to the U.S into NATO about we don't want to see Ukraine coming closer to Europe than it already is. There's a lot that someone like Putin is balancing there. The key lesson I've taken is the importance of the diplomacy. Sanctions typically are used to change behavior. And if you're going to have success, you're going to need to invest a tremendous amount of effort. And that can be in the State Department, in the Treasury Department, the NSC, to talking to our friends and allies and partners around the world and bringing them with us. Sometimes that means having them join in our sanctions. Sometimes it'll mean at least agreeing not to backfill. Yeah, so right, if people don't do business with U.S. Banks, around us. don't work around our sanctions. If the diplomacy is there and if sanctions are properly utilized as an instrument as opposed to as an objective, then I think they can be a really valuable and very impactful tool in our arsenal. Is that one of the reasons that Venezuela is arguably not working? We have really not signed the world on to those sanctions. I'm not as dismissive of the current administration's diplomatic efforts on Venezuela. We've seen about 50 countries recognizing the interim presidency of Guaido mm -hmm. and pulling recognition from mm -hmm. Maduro. That's a very significant number. And we've also seen a number of countries within the Organization of American States, Latin American countries, take a much more forceful position than they ever have, for example, with respect to Cuba. That diplomatic effort and efforts of that kind are exactly what you need. We aren't in a good place yet, though, clearly. And the suffering in Venezuela is massive and widespread. That suffering is largely the product of horrible economic mismanagement, both by Maduro and by his predecessors. The sanctions aren't helping, even though they have a carve-out for humanitarian deliveries. They're not making anything better. They're aimed at it, though. They're aimed at bringing about a new government in Venezuela that will see a turning of the page and hopefully a much brighter, more prosperous economic future for Venezuela and for its people. The jury is still out. The situation is still dynamic, mm -hmm. but we as a country can't afford to shift our attention elsewhere because the suffering is really profound and urgency of a situation like that in our hemisphere is quite serious. How do you feel now that the JCPOA has been scrapped? It's something that I think about quite a bit, and you won't be surprised to hear I feel real regret and concern about it, not from a personal standpoint in terms of my own investment in the JCPOA, but at the national level. Where are we headed in terms of Iran and their nuclear program? When I read the newspaper, I'm worried 
I'm worried because we've seen that Iran has the scientific know-how and the capability to ramp up a program somewhat quickly. They're a lot more knowledgeable now than they were in 2005, 2006. I worry when we see talk about bringing more centrifuges, more advanced centrifuges online and Iran walking away from its commitments, which means, let's not kid ourselves, Iran amassing a stockpile of enriched uranium on an accelerated route. It starts a whole race for arms in the region. Exactly. And I remember the discussions back in 2005, 2006 with our allies within our government, with the Israelis, and that's a very harrowing prospect. Iran moving towards either a nuclear weapon or to be within arm's reach of one. And I worry about the actions we're taking as a government now that seem to be unfortunately setting us back towards those types of dangers. Our countries, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, the Israelis, who have expressed support for the way the administration is handling this, but by and large our most powerful allies around the world and the allies with whom we built this deal, the countries who are on the Security Council, the UK, France, Russia, China, as well as Germany and the European Union are very much against what we're doing. They felt like, look, this deal was doing what it set out to do. It didn't set out to solve Iran. It left an Iranian regime in place that continued to support terrorism, that continued to have some very aggressive human rights violations within its country, that continued to meddle in the region in ways that the U.S. and its allies see as problematic. Everyone in the world recognized that's exactly why we can't allow Iran to amass a dangerous stockpile of enriched uranium or plutonium. That's why we had to solve the nuclear Mm -hmm. issue and put it away and then confront Iran and all those on the other things. There are lots of good arguments that I've heard people make that poke holes in the agreement that say the duration should have been longer. Okay, I, I see where that's coming from. That ballistic missiles should have been treated more comprehensively, and I see where that's coming from. But I've never understood the critique, well, don't strike a nuclear agreement with them because they're still supporting terrorism. If we wait for the moment when Iran is ready to relinquish its ties to Hezbollah, we would have had Iran already have a bomb, or at least be within arm's reach of one, because that's not on the table currently. And just as the U.S. was pragmatic when it came to the USSR and negotiating a whole series of arms control and nuclear agreements, even though we still fiercely opposed their ideology and what they were doing, we have to have the ability to do that with other threats. With countries like Iran, we can continue to see them as an adversary or as a threat and negotiate an end to their nuclear program. And in fact, I think it behooves us to do that. There was just a GAO report on the efficacy of the kingpin sanctions. When you think back of some of those many spokes that are part of the sanctions regime, do some of them need overhaul or a look back? It's always helpful to look back And as a former government official, I can tell you, I believed that then, but you're always running all out on so many different priorities that it's hard to take the time when you're in government, when you're at Treasury, to do an overhaul or a look back on how well are certain programs performing. When it comes to the narcotics sanctions programs, though, I think they've been among our most successful. There are attestations to that from kingpins themselves. When Mm -hmm. they've ultimately been arrested and been interviewed, they talk about the OFAC sanctions as being la muerte civil. Civil Mm -hmm. death is Mm -hmm. being added to the OFAC list. These groups are about amassing wealth. 
and the sanctions hit them exactly where they're most vulnerable. They hit their wealth. Yeah. They go after, whether it's real estate holdings, they go after their access to bank accounts, their access to insurance. They want to send their kids abroad to schools in Europe and the United States. All of that is lost yeah. when they're added to a blacklist. The men and women who work on these programs have been just doggedly persistent in pulling on intelligence threads, following the money, and going after the biggest fish in a way that really does hurt them. Really proud of my former colleagues for what they've done and what they continue to do on the narcotics programs. When you look about, are there things that you think should be done differently? I mean, when it comes to the sanctions programs, for the most part, it's been a continuation. And that was true when we segued from the George W. Bush administration to the Obama administration. You see variances when it comes to Cuba, where Republican presidents go in one direction, Democratic presidents go in another. But when it comes to sanctions, for example, on North Korea, on terror groups, on WMD proliferation, on the Sinaloa cartel, it's just keep on keeping on. Right. And so, yes, I think there's a lot of vitally important work that continues to go on, largely at the civil servant level. My successor, Sigal Mandelker, who was the undersecretary at the outset of the Trump administration built on what we had been doing and brought a really welcome focus to human rights violations and made some real contributions there in addition to continuing a lot of the other work that was ongoing. In terms of what do I worry about, it's not so much the administration of sanctions, it's more what we talked about earlier, the diplomacy, mm -hmm. which the sanctions are supposed to be there to serve. We can administer sanctions beautifully with full effectiveness and speed, but if they're not harnessed to a clear objective, they're not harnessed to a broader strategy, and if they're not backed up by really robust diplomacy, then I, I really fear they're not going to yield the intended results. There is a cost to using sanctions against friend and foe alike. They leave a mark. Right now, you hear some of that when you talk to some of our closest friends around the world in Canada and Europe and Australia, where the U.S. is threatening their companies with sanctions for just continuing on in the JCPOA, a deal that America helped to foster. That creates a lot of bad blood. And if we don't have a strategy, if we don't have good working relationships with our allies, then sanctions can be a massive irritant and do some, I'm afraid, some longer standing damage. What are the kinds of things that concern you? What keeps you awake at night? And what are you hopeful about? Oh, I don't know how long you have for this podcast. <laughs> the things that keep me awake at night these days are, are long and many. Looking at it through the prism of my... Well, everybody's former, anxious in America right now. Yes. Not, if it's, if it's, uh, not just in America. No, throughout the world, no. It's a really challenging time. And a lot of the assumptions that I think I grew up with or that I came into government with about the spread of democracy, free markets, rule of law, it just felt like we were on a pathway towards greater freedom around the world, towards people having greater access to information, greater access to banking services, greater access to prosperity and therefore to hope for their children's future. And so much of that has been called into question. Now, I remain an optimist and I do believe that there's an overall commitment to liberty, to rule of law, and that there's still reason for hope on so many fronts. But one thing I've learned is we can't be complacent, that these systems that we enjoy, that we grew up under, 
aren't self-executing. Our freedom of the press, our freedom of association, our freedom of religion, those all require constant care, and all the more so around the world. And when I look at places like Turkey, at Hungary, the Philippines, where you see real backsliding against democratic ideals, I think it shows how fragile some of those values are. Where's the optimism you said you were It, it hasn't been in the room for this podcast, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, I am optimistic. I think that a lot of what is being expressed right now is anxiety, is the negative side of concern and commitment and passion. And when I talk, especially to the young people in my classroom these days, and I'm teaching graduate students who are pursuing careers in international affairs, they're filled with hope. And it's signaled by them even showing up, going to these schools. They're not giving up. They're entering public service, whether to go work at the State Department, to go work in embassies around the world, to go work at the Treasury or the Defense Department, because they're taking that anxiety and doing something with it. And that's where I think I find the most cause for optimism these days. Adam Zubin, thanks for taking some time to talk. Thanks so much, Kieran. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Adam Zubin. I hope you like what you heard and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud so that you'll get an alert with each new podcast because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.